So good morning everyone. We gathered again to go on another session journey together. The title of this first talk is Looking into Our Dark Side. Um, you, maybe, you, you would be aware um, from doing the sutra reading today and what we've also, we've also introduced to our Tuesday night meeting too is we start off with um, purification, all the harm and suffering ever created by me since of old on account of my beginningless greed, hatred and ignorance, born of my action, speech and thought, I now acknowledge openly and fully. And it's very important that we we start there um, as an acknowledgement of what's um, impacting on us in our life in the way we view ourselves or view life, um, that we're acknowledging that we, we do do harm. Not only in the past, but also it's important to recognise how even going forward from here forward as a Zen practitioner, we're still capable of, of doing harm. And it's very important if we get to get any traction in the practice um, that we start at that place. Um, and uh, some of you may be aware, um, I've mentioned it in um, a Dharma talk or two, that there's a new book out on the precepts by Nancy Baker, who is a Zen teacher in New York, and it's called Opening to Oneness, um, with a subtitle, The Practice of the Zen Precepts. And in Nancy's book, what I really like about it is that the whole approach is about recognising how we fail to keep the precepts as a way of practising with them. You know, so it's not a... It's cutting through this whole self-protection, self-promotion kind of racket that spiritual people get into or religious people get into or woke people get into, for that matter, secular people as well. And if we just use, um, you know, if we think we're a, a Buddhist or a good Buddhist or a good Christian and we've just got this idea that we're nice without really doing any self-examination into our dark side, then we kind of, we miss the whole point of what practice is. And Nancy's words are very, very um, powerful. You know, it's like she says that if you take up the precepts in her, her way of doing it, you look at the killer in yourself, right? You look at the thief in yourself, you look at the, the liar in yourself and so on um, as a way of breaking through all of those self-defensive, self-promoting rackets that we get up into. And um, I, I was amused in um, I was amused in myself following on from this, you know, looking at the the dark side and looking at the killer and the thief and so on. It's that when um, I read Nancy's book, and many of you would be aware that I've I've written a book as well on the precepts, which has been submitted to a few publishers, and um, I recognised in myself that I was competitive <laughs> with her book. You know, and um, there's a little bit of putting it aside to begin with. And I thought, okay, well, if we enter into the spirit of looking into our dark side, I'll have to acknowledge that I feel some sense of competition here. Right? And but what happens? I'm using that as an example, as an, a personal disclosure, because when you do, when you when you actually recognise the dark side of your experience, it actually 
you feel a sense of competitiveness rather than collaboration, it kind of, you, you become one with it and instead of you punishing yourself for it or judging yourself harshly, you, you can view it, one, non-judgmentally and compassionately, but also recognise at the same time, oh, you're up to something here. Mm-hmm. And the word atonement, you break it down, it means at one You know, as soon as you acknowledge your dark side, as soon as I acknowledge my competitiveness, it's like I'm one with myself. I'm not trying to pretend I'm something other than what I am. And it's a kind of a, a sense of amusement, you know, and self-release actually comes with recognising it rather than some spiralling down into some shame or being defensive, whatever. It's like just the defences drop. Mm-hmm. But I can also recognise I've got a collaborative side as well. But it was amusing to me to, to get into the spirit of it and, and, um, and to acknowledge that. Otherwise, if we, don't, if we don't look at our dark side and use the precepts in particular as specifically looking at how the darkness within our own experience, then really we're just um, we're caught up in rejecting ourselves in some way. You know, there's, if, if you think of the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth being grasping and avoiding, we're just a, then we're caught up in a, an aversion and avoidance of our own experience. But what's important in the way that we approach looking into the dark side and looking at the precepts and how they, how they relate personally to me is that it's the same way that we look at the precepts and we're looking at ourselves in the same way. So we look at the precepts from the point of view of emptiness where it's non-judgmental. There's no concept of right or wrong. It's just life happening moment by moment. And we can also look at it compassionately, right? And we can look at it from the literal point of view, but that, that means like from a discerning point of view. So the way to practice with the precepts, it's not just that you look at them from that emptiness point of view where it's non-judgmental. It's like you start there, that's one lens you look through, and then you're looking at the same time through another lens that looks at your experience compassionately, right? You can be kind and friendly towards yourself that you're angry, for instance. And then there's a third lens that you look through where you discern, okay, that's resentment I'm experiencing right now. It's not a, it's not a loving feeling, it's resentment. And so that needs to be acknowledged as well. So it's like the three operate together. It's not even consecutively. The three operate together, non-judgmental, compassionate, discerning, right? And if you look through those three lens at all of your behaviour in relation to the precepts, then you've got a way of working with it which is effective, right? There's no denial, but it's you're not getting into harsh judgment of yourself or anything like that. If you look at the Four Noble Truths, um, the suffering, there's a cause of suffering, which is, in the old language, is greed, hatred and ignorance. Then there's an end of suffering and a path that leads to it. It's saying the same thing. It's like we need to acknowledge that we're driven by 
greed, hatred and ignorance, grasping, aversion, apathy, whatever words you want to use, it's acknowledging that that is the cause of our suffering to ourselves and to other people. And if we just bypass it, we don't, we don't really engage with the practice. Mm-hmm. If you look at the um, practice principles, they're the same thing. We start caught in the self-centred dream. I am caught in the self-centred dream. Um, holding to self-centred thoughts. I'm hold, I am holding to self-centred thoughts and emotions. That's why I am the dream. That is the dream. right? But there is another way. You know, just being present to life as it is, and each moment you know, is compassion's way. They, they follow the Four Noble Truths. But you need to start right at the beginning. Um, with um, Joko's teaching, she didn't actually formally teach the precepts um, and she was concerned that people would turn them into an ideal, you know, an ideal perfectionist way of how they should be and it would get in the way. But if you really look at her teaching and if you knew her personally as I did, the precepts were very, very much essential to her way of being and her... her, her um, her style of teaching, which is very much getting us to look into our dark side, into our self-centred preoccupations. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> on a personal level, uh, I remember when she was out visiting here to Australia many years ago, she came out maybe five, six times. And I remember a conversation I had with her, I think it was when I was driving her to the airport once, but it was, um, it was well acknowledged um, that in Joko's personal life, she used to be um, married to a man who was schizophrenic. And, um, and as some, not all, as some schizophrenic people can be, um, when he became paranoid, he became very, very violent. So Joko was on the receiving end of domestic violence as well as her children. And, um, and she decided to divorce him because it was just too unbearable. You know, there's too much suffering happening as a result of it. And I remember talking to her about mental illness and, and looking at it within dysfunctional patterns of couple relationships, you know. And so Joko immediately asks us the question, oh, how could have I been responsible for that? Right? That's not where I was going with it, but that was her, her immediate response. Oh, tell me where I might have gone wrong in this relationship. It's that willingness to actually go there, you know, rather than think I'm squeaky clean because I'm a Zen teacher. That, that willingness to go into the dark, you know, um, is, um, is, is part of what Zen practice is all about. Not all of it, but it's an important part of it. Um, in our sort of cultural milieu that we, we, we all live in today, there's a kind of, in many ways, there's a, a moving away from institutional religion like the church and Christianity, more towards secularism, um, and also more towards um, Eastern religions like Zen or Buddhism. And some people kind of have the view that Christianity was the bad religion, and now now we're going to Buddhism, which is the good religion, you know. Um, and it's not quite as 
black and white as that. And um, um, in, there are, I've got a lot of um, Irish friends who grew up as Irish Catholics and, and in Ireland there's been a, a shunning of the Catholic Church sort of to, to a greater degree perhaps than any other country because the institutions were so harsh um, and psychologically damaging to people in many kind of ways. And when I have conversations with my Irish friends, I think I say to them, yeah, but I think you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And they look at me wryly and they go, yeah, but you, you don't know what it was like to grow up yeah. with that. But I still think um, people can throw out the baby with the bathwater in terms of whether it's Christianity or whether they grow up with Buddhism, um, because in, in traditional religions, not, not just Catholicism, but many different religions, you, including Buddhism, you start off looking at this dark side of yourself, call it greed, hatred and ignorance, call it, call it sin, which is a, such a negative word, but we start there. And... Um, even if you look at all of the literature that comes out these days on, on narcissism, you know, which is the closest psychological term we have to self-centredness, um, all the books are about how you can spot it in other people. <laughs> you know? I, I, I've looked at the literature. I haven't found one book about how you examine it in yourself. It's all, it's all your narcissistic boss, your narcissistic boyfriend, your narcissistic neighbour, you know, how you can work out whether they're narcissistic. <laughs> the starting point of all traditional religion has always been, well, what is the narcissism here? You know, the pride, the, the, the self-grasping, etc., that goes on, the avarice that goes on, it starts here. Mm -hmm. But the problem with a lot, of, a lot of religious institutions, like the Irish Catholic Church in many ways, not all of them, is that it, it's so harsh, do you know, the, the guilt is so crippling that it's not productive and people turn away from it, understandably. But nevertheless, the message is there that that's where we need to start if we're going to get any kind of traction in the practice. Otherwise, what happens with this sort of um, culture we're in today where people don't look at their own narcissism is that we end up with a, um, uh, a psychological process happening which in psychoanalysis is called splitting and projecting. So splitting is simply where you, you ignore your dark side, you just identify with your good social side that you'd like to project to the world. You ignore that and then you project it onto other people. So other people are racist, other people are sexist, other people are classist, other people are something or another. Um, but the hard work hasn't been done in looking at our own, our own narcissism or self-centred dream that we're coming from. So it's a bit of a spiritual bypass. Um, when, we, when we take up the precepts, um, it's very important that even though we may be willing to look into our dark side and recognise those self-centred impulses, what also comes along 
with practising the precepts or practising Zen in any, any way is impulse control. And impulse control is one of the basic skills of emotional management. Um, all, all human beings have it. Um, I might feel an angry urge comes up, but I don't act on it. Like I, something in me goes, just stay calm, don't do anything, it'll pass. And then you don't do anything that's appropriate or causes any harm, right? So that if you take up the precepts, that that's part of what you take up, is to actually practice impulse control so you don't do harm in the world. Um, but what the, what the problem is, where I think there's a, a misunderstanding, is that impulse control is not something which is against or opposite spontaneity. Where everyone's trying to get to in this in practice is to get beyond this grasping, aversion, apathy dynamic within us. So do we get to a spontaneous, like spontaneous goodness that we experience in the world? Or as one of the Christian saints said, something along the lines of um, love God and do what you will. Right? So you just eliminate this dark side and then, then you're free to do whatever you want. Um, but that what if you think like that, it's like you're creating a dualism. There's this impulse control or inhibition over here and the spontaneity over here, and I've got to get from here over to here. Right? Um, I think that's an incorrect way of looking at it. Um, and if you use examples from everyday life, um, when you drive a car, you've got an accelerator and you've got a brake. So you've got a way of stopping and you've got a way of going, right? And you need both, right? You can't have one or the other. Um, but if you're driving in a manner which is not impatient, you're not sort of end-gaining to get somewhere and getting irritated, then you spontaneously put the brakes on and you spontaneously put the accelerator on. That's the skill of driving a car. It's not as though you're white-knuckling it, you know, and you're you accelerating fast and then putting your brakes on suddenly, like that, in a harsh kind of way. It's just a smooth, patient, relaxed way of driving a car. All of that is the skill of driving a car. Impulse control is part of spontaneity. It's part of that skill that becomes second nature in, in driving a car. Put it in the human context, you know, you're with a group of people and and you're having a conversation and there's something you want to say and you go, oh no, because I've said too much and other people need a chance to say something. So you just gently put the brakes on and you let other people speak. And then it might be your turn to speak and you put the accelerator on and away you go. So it requires, even in that social context, we're inhibiting and we, 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 we're expressing freely and inhibiting all the time. All of that is spontaneity. It's not, not about getting from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And um, it, like I said, it's part of emotional intelligence to have impulse control rather than thinking, I'm just going to become good and everything I say or do will then be good. Mm -hmm. You also take the example of um, the Buddha. Sometimes when, when 
someone came up and asked him a question which required answering in, in words, then he would say something. You know, he would give a teaching in words. Sometimes someone would come up and he would sit there in noble silence. Mm -hmm. So one assumes he went inhibited and went, shut up, (laughs) say nothing here. Uh That's the best kind of teaching. So even the Buddha would have been exercising some sense of, of impulse control. The difference is, is that when the grasping, aversion, apathy, the impatience, anger and that settle down. It's just that you're doing it with a light touch. You're doing it, you're inhibiting gently rather than inhibiting harshly. That's the the difference that occurs. It's not as though you just get rid of impulse control altogether. Um, Unfortunately, there's been, um, you don't hear about it so much these days, but back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism was very popular in America and here, um, there were a number of very controversial issues of, um, in this instance, um, male teachers, like Chokram Trumpa, um, another Zen teacher whose name escapes me now, that Robert Aitken knew, um, crossing sexual boundaries with, with students. And it wasn't like it was just a one-off thing of falling in love with someone. They were like they were they were serial sexual predators, right? They're supposed to be enlightened, right? So it raises the question: Do you know what is the difference between being enlightened and being a Buddhist psychopath? Because right? <laughs> psychopaths don't have any sense of remorse or shame that actually allows them to inhibit. You know, think well. I want to have sexes with, woman, with this woman, and so I'll, I'll go for it. There's no sense of whether it's in her best interest or whether it may cause harm or whatever. So this idea that you become enlightened and you don't need impulse control anymore and you're beyond the precepts and you just act spontaneously and everything you do is good is a very harmful um, way of looking at the precepts. And not all Zen teachers are like that, but there are examples of it where that occurs. So it's very important in not just whether we're teachers but just all of us in our everyday life that our understanding of the precepts always recognises that we move towards more spontaneous goodness the more we engage with them. We always will require impulse control and the way that we mature into the precepts is to keep on acknowledging how we fail to keep them. Like I said in the beginning, we do that and then it breaks through all of the the self-protection, self-promotion rackets we all get up to and there's an authenticity has a chance to come through in our life. So as we practice during this session, I don't want you all to become preoccupied with your dark side. I just want you to turn up to your experience, whatever it is. If you, like it says in that guest house um, uh, poem that we recite, you know, if if a dark thought comes, if a dark emotion comes, just acknowledge it. That it's there. You don't have to act on it, but just acknowledge it. If a loving thought comes, 
acknowledge it. If a neutral thought comes, acknowledge it. But just turn up to the complete non-judgmental um, experience as you sit on the cushion as moments pass one after another. <laughs>